equitable thing to do this morning so that we're not thrown off on our equilibrium is that I would just kind of pick up those bonus minutes that Mark left us with last week after he <laughs> preached his amazing sermon and kind of apply them. So are, are we good with that? That's the equitable thing to do. Just a little forewarning. <laughs> you know, sometimes I, I want legends to be true. And I like to believe that the legend of the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, is true. And, and perhaps it is true. Legend has it that this song, song was sung by 12th century German crusaders as they made their way to the Holy Land. And that's why the song is sometimes referred to as the Crusaders' Hymn. Now, that's not a justification for the Crusades. It's just that I like to imagine in my mind that those who are going off to do battle kept Christ and his beauty before them as they made their way across the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles through countryside, through the woods, as they traveled by day and by night with the, the moon and the, and the sun to guide them, they compared everything they saw to Jesus and sang, Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer. Who makes the woeful heart to sing? Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Look, even if that is a legend, guess what? You and I can make it a reality right now. Because you and I can keep the beauty of Jesus always before us. As we look around, wherever we go, whatever we pass, whatever we encounter, we can look for ways that Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer. Jesus is brighter. Jesus is better. I'm confident that we can accomplish great things. And that we can experience great transformation when we keep the beauty and the better than-ness of Jesus always before us. So, we must keep the beauty of Jesus always before us. Matthew chapter 4 is going to help us do that this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 12, chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, this is the word of the Lord. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, 
And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, they saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you now knowing that we must have your blessing on us as we come together around your word. It's only through your blessing upon us and your spirit within us that we will have uh, eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus here. So we pray that you will reveal that to us and that by seeing it, Lord, we will love you more deeply and follow you closely and immediately. Pray that you'll do these things for us and in us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And be seated. So where do we see the beauty of Jesus in this passage? Well, we see it in four W's. Four W's. W1, what Jesus does. Number two, where Jesus goes. Number three, who Jesus calls. And number four, what they see. So let's begin first uh, looking at what Jesus does. Look in verse 12. If you have the English Standard Version... The verse begins with the word now. And when Matthew uses the word now here, he doesn't mean that the story he's about to tell that we just read follows immediately after the story that he just told about Jesus, his baptism, and his temptation, because it doesn't. About a year of time has passed between where we left off in Matthew 4, and and what we've read this morning. Some people call this uh, the the obscure year, the first year of Jesus' ministry. Matthew doesn't tell us what happened in that year. But John does tell us in his gospel a little bit about what happened in the first four chapters. Well-known events, events that we love, like John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The wedding of Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. The meeting that Jesus had with Nicodemus, where he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was during the first year as well that Jesus offered living water to that woman that he met by that well in Samaria. But instead of recording those stories, Matthew takes us straight from Jesus' baptism and temptation to Jesus' move from Jerusalem to Galilee. And in so doing, Matthew does a beautiful thing for those who read his gospel, for you and for me, because he puts before us in uncluttered clarity What makes the life of Jesus so beautiful? I don't mean to suggest that anything in the life of Jesus was cluttered. 
It was not. It was just too much for Matthew to record. And so he leaves out what might distract us from seeing that what is so beautiful about the life of Jesus is that Jesus lived his life to fulfill the will of God. Look in verse 14. Jesus did what he did so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So that. Here is the purpose of the life of Jesus. So that what God spoke might actually come to pass. And Matthew tells the story of Jesus in such a way that we do not miss that point. How could we? This is the fifth, the fifth fulfillment passage that Matthew has used in just the first four chapters. What makes Jesus' life so beautiful is that it fulfills all the good promises, all the good purposes, all the good plans of the one and only true and living God who alone is good. So don't miss the beauty. Keep that beauty before your eyes because if fulfilling the purpose of God is what makes the life of Jesus so beautiful, what will it do for your life and for mine? Your life. When you live it to fulfill the purpose of God will never fail to be beautiful. Your life. When you live it to fulfill the purpose of God will never fail to be a thing of beauty. The things that bring the beauty may not be beautiful. The beauty often has to rise from ashes. What beautiful thing is the Lord going to do through St. Andrews? We don't know. The beauty often comes from pain and suffering and disappointment. But God promises to work all those things together, all things. He promises to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so we submit our lives to Him, just as Christ submitted His life, all of it, into the loving hands of His Father, a beautiful thing. And that's what makes life beautiful. Now raise your hand if you want an ugly life. You want U-G-L-Y. You ain't got no alibi. You're ugly. Hey, hey, ugly. Nobody wants that, right? We want our lives to be a thing of beauty. We want them to have meaning. We want them to have purpose. And that's an attainable goal for all of us when we submit our lives to the will of God. And we can do that when we keep the beauty of Jesus always before us. And what made his life beautiful in the midst of hunger and thirst and temptation and rejection and suffering and death, unbeautiful things, were that through them he fulfilled the will of God, and so we can sing, Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. We can sing those words to the one who died a cruel death on the cross, knowing that the ugly was made beautiful because it fulfilled the purpose of God. And so our lives will be a thing of beauty when we live them to fulfill the plan of God and keep our eyes fixed on the beauty of Jesus. That's W1, what Jesus did. Let's move now to the second W. 
and see the beauty of Jesus and where he goes. Look again in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Now I'm going to spare you the grammar lesson this morning. And the people of God said, but we're going to have a geography lesson instead. Galilee, if you look at a map of Israel, it's, it, it, it's far north of Jerusalem. And it borders the Sea of Galilee on the north and on the western side. That's the territory of Galilee. It's not a large territory, but you will recognize the name of some of the cities uh, in that region. Uh, Cana is there. Nazareth is there. Tiberias is there. Capernaum. All of those cities are in the area of Galilee. Wasn't a huge area geographically, but it was very densely populated because it was such a fertile uh, area. The historian Josephus says that all the land in Galilee was cultivated and there was no waste. And he tells us that the smallest village, the smallest village in Galilee had 15,000 people. So even if Josephus exaggerated a little, as he was sometimes prone to do in his history. The point is still that Galilee was filled with people. And we need to see this morning that Jesus went to Galilee, a place filled with people, on purpose. Because when Matthew writes in verse 12 that Jesus withdrew to Galilee when he heard that John had been arrested, that could easily sound like Jesus was scared. If John was arrested, they might arrest me too. Additionally, the word withdrew is often used to mean getting away from danger. That's how Matthew used it when he tells about the wise men, the, the, the magi. They were warned of danger in a dream, and so they withdrew by a different route. They withdrew from danger. But Jesus does not flee to Galilee in fear. You know why it could have been fear? Because Herod, the same one who arrested John, who ruled over Judea, also ruled over Galilee. So what good would it do to flee there to escape danger? No, Jesus moves to Galilee. He was not motivated by fear, but was instead an intentional move to advance the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus did in this verse is he exchanged Judea down here in the south, which was mountainous and isolated. He exchanged it for Galilee, which was wide open and accessible. He exchanged the ministry of John the Baptist, which took place in the wilderness, a ministry in which people came out to the wilderness to him. Jesus exchanged that for a ministry in Galilee where Jesus would go to the people. So where Jesus went was beautiful because it was incarnational. That's why Jesus took on flesh in the first place, right? So he could go and be where the people are. And that's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us, with people. Now, I try to remember the importance of people when it takes me 15 minutes to go two blocks in this city right now. That's a true story, right? Try getting around downtown or, or, or in West Ashley. And so I remind myself that those cars represent people. The more cars, the more people, 
the more people, the more opportunity to present the beautiful one who went to where the people were. And then I think of the alternative. A place where there is no traffic that would allow me to get anywhere I wanted to go with great ease. So it might be more convenient, but less traffic, fewer people. Fewer people, fewer opportunities to share the gospel. And so I try, not always successfully, to have a kingdom mindset even when I'm sitting in traffic. And instead of shooting up a gesture, well, I, I would never shoot up a gesture. Really, I would not. My wife might, but that's a different story. <laughs> True story. I shoot up a prayer instead. Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for the people you're bringing to Charleston. You know, Charleston is an exciting place for the gospel as it grows so quickly. Would you agree with that? And if we'll take advantage of the opportunity that God is bringing here, we, you and I, Redeemer, we can potentially advance the kingdom of God. But it wasn't just the number of people that made Jesus move to Galilee, that made it such a beautiful act. It was the kind of people that he found there because important roads and trade routes passed through Galilee. One commentator wrote that Judea, where Jesus had been, was on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the way to everywhere. And you know what that means, even even in our day, different kinds of people from off, you know, they make their way to places like this. People from different races, people from different backgrounds and cultures and worldviews. Because of this, Galilee was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the heathen, Galilee of the pagans. And that's just what we would expect from such a highly populated place. And these people are, of course, engaging in behavior that we would expect from those who do not love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Behavior we expect of people who do not love their neighbor as themselves. Those kind of people live self-centered lives. Self-indulgent lives. They live Darwinian lives. Survival of the fittest lives. The one who dies with the most toys wins kind of lives. They live lives without restraint and encourage others to live that way as well. Just the kind of place and just the kind of people from whom Christians often want to flee. Just the kind of place and people that cause Christians to want to retreat and stay in the safety and the shelter of the Christian community, the holy huddle, and stay there. But every huddle is supposed to be broken, or the game wouldn't go on, right? There would be no gridiron battle if everybody stayed in the huddle. And so we as believers have to fight the urge to flee and stay huddled together. We've got to fight the urge to be an enclave unto ourselves. We have to fight the urge to look for heaven on earth. And look, I'll be honest. If I romanticize anything, 
in my life, it's how much I would love to live a quiet, simple life in a peaceful place where a pretty white church is the dominant feature on the beautiful village green, where everybody thinks just as I think. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Wouldn't you like to live there? Maybe closer to my, my roots, little brown church in the veil. Come, 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 come. Church in the veil. Know that song? I guess not. So we'll move on. So I guess I wonder what we're hoping for. That we won't have any more gospel work to do then? That we would have heaven on earth? Listen, heaven is the city of God, and earth will not be heaven until the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. And so Jesus does not retreat by going to Galilee. He advances, and that's beautiful, into the heart of the place where people of the world live. He advances into the darkness of their unbelief and confusion and hopelessness. Look in verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. In his commentary, William Hendrickson refers to darkness as delusion, depravity, and despondency. Delusion, depravity, and despondency. Jesus, our beautiful Savior, enters into that. And He brings light to it. He exposes it. The delusion is exposed. The depravity is exposed by His light. The despondency to which both lead are exposed. And because He did not retreat, because Jesus did not retreat, delusion is replaced with reality. That the Lord, Jesus Christ, is preeminent in all things. That's not a delusion. That's the truth. Because he did not retreat, he replaced depravity with goodness and uprightness and virtue and justice. Because he did not retreat, he replaced despondency with hope and joy. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O Thou of God and man the Son, Thee will I cherish, Thee will I honor my soul's glory, joy, and crown. What would Charleston look like if you and I refused to retreat? What replacements will God make in the lives of people around us if you and I will be incarnational, going to instead of fleeing from? I know that they will be beautiful replacements. And if we see and rejoice in the beauty of the one who came to live among us, and bring light to darkness, then surely we must embrace the privilege of being used by Jesus to bring light to the darkness around us. W2, where Jesus went. W3, in which we see the beauty of Jesus, is who he calls. Look in verse 18. Jesus calls two brothers, Peter and Andrew, and in verse 21 he calls two other brothers, James and John. And so what's so beautiful here about who Jesus calls is what is not beautiful. What is not beautiful about the ones he does call. Here's what's not beautiful about these four men. They're not men of deep spiritual insight and understanding. These are the men who are going to stand beside Jesus, 
the bread of life, capital B, capital L, bread of life, they're going to stand beside him and say, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed all these people? Uh, sorry if I've <laughs> misrepresented them. Guys who asked Jesus, or who, who Jesus asked, do you still not understand? These guys were not particularly compassionate. When a certain village refused to welcome Jesus, James and John saw it and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Not very compassionate. They were prideful. They came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said to them once, what were you all discussing as we walked along the road together? And nobody said anything. They kept silent because they had been asking which one among them was the greatest. They weren't particularly forgiving people. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven? They weren't particularly men of great faith. A man brought his son to the disciples to be healed. The disciples couldn't do it. Jesus did it. The disciples said to Jesus, why were we not able to do it? And Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith. They weren't prayerful. Jesus comes to them in the garden of Gethsemane and says, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? They weren't particularly courageous men. Jesus was arrested in the garden. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Is it not a beautiful thing that Jesus calls men like this to follow him and to be his disciples? It's a beautiful thing that Jesus meets them where they are and takes them where they need to be. And you know what? Though these men were drastically transformed by when the Spirit of God came to indwell them, complete transformation has to wait for heaven. They never completely arrived on this earth at perfect understanding, perfect compassion, perfect humility, perfect forgiveness, perfect faith, or prayer, or courage. And Jesus already knows that. And yet Jesus, our beautiful Savior, calls them anyway. How glad are you right now that Jesus calls people like this? People who don't always get it. People who are not compassionate or forgiving or prayerful or faithful or courageous. That could be my profile on any given day, honestly. But Jesus calls anyway. Jesus uses anyway people like you and me and people that you might think right now Jesus would never call. You don't know because it's our beautiful Savior. Glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. That's W3, who Jesus calls. And I'll close this morning with the last W. What's perhaps the most beautiful thing about Jesus is, is what the disciples see. Look in verse 20 and 22. Both verses say the same thing. Immediately these brothers left and followed Jesus. I think it's interesting that all that Matthew could have recorded, all that really did happen in this moment of time, this meeting between Jesus and these brothers, the conversation is not recorded. Please notice the disciples in Matthew's account do not speak. Matthew only records their reaction to Jesus' call. And that is when Jesus called, they followed immediately. They gave up their livelihoods. 
to follow Jesus. James and John left their father to follow Jesus. Why? I don't think it's because of what they know or knew about Jesus. No doubt there is a body of facts, propositional truths, true facts that we know about Jesus. And you and I have the privilege of studying the truth of Jesus for a lifetime, right? As he has revealed to us right here in his word. But these men did not yet know those truths about Jesus when they followed him. They had not yet experienced them. Is Jesus full of grace? Absolutely. John's later going to write about it. Is Jesus full of truth? Absolutely. John is going to write about it later. The first chapter of his gospel, that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. But they came to know that after following Jesus, not before. After being filled with the Spirit of God, not before. After experiencing the presence of the one who promised to be with them always, even for John over the course of a life that that spanned more than 90 years. But here on the beach, John and James and Peter and Andrew didn't know so much. Instead, I believe they followed because of what they saw. John writes about that as well in chapter 1. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And I don't know what glory looks like, and so I can't describe it for you. I just know that Jesus has it, and the disciples saw it, and it was compelling. And sometimes I think we forget the power of of the person of Jesus. I have friends who own a Belgian waffle shop. And I take my computer to work there usually once a week. And I love to watch people's reaction when they come into that shop. (gasps) This place smells amazing. And then I wait for it because I know what's coming. They're going to get that hot waffle prepared just for them. And they're going to take a bite. And invariably they're going to close their eyes and go, "Mm, mm," and chew it. So slowly. And then this almost always happens while I'm there. Someone comes in and says, I was here the other day. And I just had to come back for another waffle. Look, no one really knows the truth about those waffles. The ingredients in them. Or the amounts in which those ingredients occur. Or how that dough is made. They just experience the goodness of that waffle. Now, go tell all your friends that the pastor compared Jesus to a waffle. Not really. I'm just saying that we know that there is a knowing that goes beyond knowing, right? An understanding without complete knowledge. A transcendent perception that Jesus makes possible. He is, after all, the Son of God. And He cannot be, that glory can't be completely concealed by his flesh. It's radiant, it's glorious, and it takes facts and truth to a new level. And that has to be what's going on here along the beach, something a little waffle-esque. They don't know the facts about Jesus, but they perceive that he is really, really good. And what these men experienced of Jesus made them leave their nets, their livelihood, 
all they knew vocationally, their family relationships to follow him. I think this is what is meant by what's come to be called irresistible grace. John, the one who leaves everything immediately to follow Jesus, records the words Jesus spoke. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's beautiful drawing. A transaction has taken place here along the shore of this lake. A mysterious transaction between God the Father and God the Son. The Father determined, I'm giving you these men as a gift. And so God draws them to Jesus. He opens the eyes of these men in this moment to see something captivating. It must have been the glory of Jesus. And so immediately they follow him. They might not yet know all the beautiful propositional truths about Jesus, but they perceive his glory. And this is how I pray that all of us here will relate to Jesus, a glorious person. And I pray that for us he will be more than a set of facts, of propositional truths. For that to happen, you and I must be praying, Lord, open the eyes of my heart so that I can see you high, lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Let me tell you, that will transform us, <laughs> seeing the glory of Jesus. And just imagine how changed you'll be when every day you see the glory of Jesus. Imagine the change that other people are going to see in you because you've seen the glory of Jesus. Imagine the courage we'll glean from his glory. We'll be confident in the power of the person of Jesus as we present him to others. He's beautiful. He's glorious. And he will draw men and women and children to himself. He can because he's such a beautiful Savior in what he does living his life to fulfill the plan of God, beautiful in where he goes, to places where the people are, where they're living in darkness and bringing them light, beautiful in who he calls, imperfect people, meeting them where they are and taking them where they need to be, beautiful in who he is, the Lord of all nature, Son of God and Son of Man. So when you and I keep the beauty of Jesus before us, we can accomplish great things and bring about great transformation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may it be so. Lord, as we see your glory and your beauty, I pray that you would transform us. And Lord, that the transformation that you bring about in us, glory of Jesus, seers, that we would then move out from this place, move out from the huddle in which we want to stay, not just sometimes, which is good and beautiful, but always, we'll be eager to move out into a world where there is depravity and despair and despondency. We'll be eager to share the light of Christ with them because you are so beautiful, Lord Jesus, and your beauty and glory is so compelling.
calls us to share it often as we make our way through this world. And Lord, give us eyes to see as we pass along the way. Whatever it is we pass. Father, I pray that we would look at those things with eyes that cause us always to conclude, yeah, that Jesus is more beautiful. Jesus is better. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.